This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Yaron, thank you for being with us again. I know I'm taking a lot of your time, but I think we all really appreciate your expertise. The last two episodes, we have talked about muscles, why they matter, the role that they play in multi-organ dysfunction. And then this last episode, we've talked about nutrition and how metabolic needs change depending on the condition, the timing. So I kind of want to bring that to the bedside and what that all means and how we can apply that. You've mentioned different ways to measure metabolic needs. Can you tell us more about what you and your team has developed as far as how to know exactly what a patient needs on that specific moment in their life? Yeah, again, thank you again for, for having me. Good question. I think that's, that's still something we are kind of figuring out what kind of assessment we need to do. Our current research is particularly focused on muscle metabolic changes over time, where the muscle itself is a kind of a big metabolic organ. So that's the reason why it's, it's easy for us to assess it in a way of, of course, the metabolic arts, which we already know that can drive your metabolic needs, but also using body composition assessments. So bioimpedance, for instance, we have specific bioimpedance from InBody USA. Those are multi-frequency bioimpedance devices that can measure very well your overall body composition, your total body water, your extracellular and intracellular water. So you have to somehow combine that with the metabolic arts with the non-invasive hemodynamics, with the imaging potentially from the CT scan and also from your ultrasound on the bedside. And that combine it also with the body composition for the impedance. And then also looking at your ABGs and combine all those data sets together that drives your cardiopulmonary metabolic phenotype of your patient being sedated, yes or no, or being on the vent, yes or no and see what they need on a day-by-day basis. So it's you can imagine those. there's a kind of an assessment street, right? So how can you use that and, and do that very easily? Right now, we have a kind of a assessment team which uh, does all those assessments separately, also in our COVID patients before. There is no one silver bullet. You should, I think in our research, the metabolic card is kind of the, the center. So the VO2 and the VCO2, and ventilation assessments is in the center and everyone is, is kind of hooked to it. So we, we combine VO2 with hemodynamics. We combine VO2 with O2 differences in the arterial and venous side. So you can have far better insight in, in how is that specific patient being more inflamed, more hypermetabolic, or maybe potentially hypometabolic, because that's also what you're seeing. And we know that the, from, a, from a nutritional perspective, or even from an exercise perspective, or from a nutrition perspective, overfeeding and underfeeding has a significant effects. Underfeeding, you can, of course, mention that just the muscle protein synthesis goes down, so you will be having less muscle. And we talked before about muscle mass in itself and muscle quality in itself uh, has for influence on their 
overall metabolic inter-organ crosstalk with, with all the systems. But also the, the hyper, if you're uh, overfeeding patients, then you're giving them a far higher load of carbon dioxide to breathe out, which is a larger and a higher load of your ventilatory system, like the intercostal muscles and like the diaphragm, for instance. And the diaphragm is a kind of a, in that sense, a kind of a weird muscle. Intercostal muscle is muscle that normally uses for when you're having a kind of a threshold of ventilation. So when you're uh, uh, exercising, so then the more intercostal muscles will, will come when you get a specific breathing compared with intercostal and diaphragmatic function. The diaphragm itself is not a, it's kind of a weird muscle because it's very thin. It is around two millimeters thick and it can thicken about 20 to two or four millimeters, depending on uh, the size of the patient. But it has very strange kind of distribution of fibers. So we know our fast fibers and our slow fibers. So our fast twitch and a slow twitch. The slow twist fibers are the fibers that you have in your muscle that are more predominantly made for long-term endurance so that you can prolong your exercising. The, the fast twist fibers, the very thick fibers, are your fibers you need for sprinting, for very fast action, instant action. The whole metabolic need of those fibers are different. Uh, normally you have, it depends on the muscle you have around a specific distribution of fast versus slow. But in your diaphragm, it is 50% fast and 50% slow. And that's the only muscle in the body that has a specific distribution. You can ask yourself, why is that? Is that kind of an evolutionary kind of point of view? Because you can imagine that uh, endurance, of course, makes sense because you have to endure your ventilation. And from my evolutionary biological perspective, ventilation is utmost importance because ventilation goes for oxygenation, oxygenation heart, oxygenation brain. So... There's kind of a veto in regard to everything else. Also is that the, the, the threshold of fast twitch fibers is kind of weird. I think when you're instantly provoking a muscle, giving them instant activation, that will always first get you into the fast twitch fibers. And then you get recruitment of the rest of the fibers. And you have, if you have a lot of demand, then every single fiber will be, will be recruited, slow or fast. But then comes the kicker somehow. Going back to how ventilation goes is that the veto of perfusion of the muscle of the diaphragm is of the utmost importance of the body. So if there is anything that needs more perfusion, then everything else will be vasoconstricted, even the legs. So you can have a relative vasoconstriction, a relative hypoxia in the legs or in the skeletal muscles if there is a higher demand of the diaphragm, which it cannot deliver. So if you have a patient being potentially dated or being intubated, and he has to have a very high drive of ventilation. So there is, from a brain perspective, a high need of oxygenation. So that muscle, the diaphragm, will be working as hard as it can get. It will be kind of working like you normally do with an exercises. And then the body will shift. And the body will shift to making sure that the perfusion of that muscle is always there. And then it can give a shift in your VO2, your over VO2 of around 25%. So your, all your perfusion of, the, of, the, of blood goes to your diaphragm instead of the rest of your system. And in that specific framework, looking at fast and slow, you can see that even if you are, there's a big study done in, with Divine where they showed that there was in brain dead patients where uh, organs were being harvested that they saw that the muscle biopsies in different parts of the diaphragm 
that they saw that even within four hours of mechanical ventilation, you already saw remodeling of your fast twitch muscle fibers in your diaphragm when you're just having a healthy guy who had an accident, died, and was brain dead and being harvested. There's not a guy who was already in ICU and had some other comorbidities that is even when you're just young and healthy. So there was an instant change in remodeling of the diaphragm, not only looking at the less thickness, of course, it also happens, you can have a less thickness, but I think it's more important that the quality of the diaphragm in regard to muscle distribution, muscle fiber distribution, and just the ability to, to give power decreases significantly within hours after intubation. So, yeah. And how does that impact their outcomes? You know, when, I mean, I don't think, I don't think at the bedside that we really focus on the diaphragm, even oh. nurses, respiratory therapists, it's just not a huge part of our discussion. Like it is perfusing the kidneys and things like that. So why is the diaphragm so important in their outcomes? How does it impact being able to extubate, decrease reintubation rates? Like what's, exactly. what's the big deal? Yeah. I, th I think, again, it, it makes sense that your inability to contract diaphragm and that is measured, but we can, of course, assess diaphragmatic function with the use of ultrasound. Uh, ultrasound assessment, you can do very well when you can measuring the inspiration, expiration. You can see the resting thickness versus the thickness during the end of the inspiration. And that is a kind of a diaphragmatic thinking, thickening index. We know you should have around... There's a lot of studies done that show that if you have a lower than 40% thickening index, so you have an inability to thicken your muscle less than 40%, then you have a diaphragmatic dysfunction, and then you have a high chance of having a, not being able to, to win off the vent. So if you then do a specific breathing trial whatsoever, you will see there will be, there will be issues afterwards. So you have to be reintubated or what. And there's so far more that we don't know that potentially has influence on, on the diaphragm itself. Just looking at pleural effusion. So imagine that you have a muscle that's really laying in an effusion. It's just soaking. Uh -huh. Itself will also be changing. His, his, the connective tissue inside the pleural layer, so the peritoneal and visceral pleura, will also change in, 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 in morphology in how it, how it thickens. Mm. If you have a pleural effusion on one side and then the side is on the other side, then you have a double problem. Then you have <laughs> high pressure in a lower part of the abdominal part, abdominal region in the cavity, and then also in the thorax cavity. So you have a hyperfusion from lung, hyperfusion from your abdominal cavity. So there is a high, kind of a high pressure system over there where a muscle still needs to contract and move around. Right. And if it doesn't, so, it's going to weaken. Yes, it weaken more. Yeah. And also have an inability to contract because you have a high pressure area in that cavity so it should, it's only contracting, it's also moving downwards and upwards. So there's also a movement involved. And that movement can only be done if there is a sliding possibility of the diaphragm coming around. And we, again, this, this, is, this is new research we're doing right now. We, we see there's a lot of issues in pa patients, potentially that you have a fast remodeling of that muscle where there's a lot of effusion, looking at RDS patients. And of course, we saw a lot of our COVID patients have a huge amount of fusion at the upper part of the diaphragm, which potentially have huge effects on the diaphragmatic function. So top of this making, making the step to more clinical, what I would like to have is if you want to do a spatina briefing trial, combine that with assessments of diaphragmatic function. Can you literally somehow see, does that diaphragm really take over? So 
if you have less assistance in your breathing, do you see that the diaphragm will thicken better and will move around better without his being right now being being assisted? If that's not the case, I think then you already have a discussion because you can see that the body is unable to yeah, to ventilate, to, to function. Independently breathe. And I think um, with the breathing trials, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot going on to it. You, if you heavily sedated a patient for a while, when you yeah. wean off that sedation, they're likely to be hypoactive, have hypoactive delirium. Yeah. Um, and that obviously impacts their ability to ventilate. But I don't think the diaphragm ever comes up in those discussions. And I think some of these, some of our ICUs end up tracking most patients that are on the ventilator for more than a week. And it's just assumed it's par for the course. You get debated. If you're a certain level of acuity, you're going to be tricked and pegged and sent to LTAC. But I think the assumption is that because it's because they're so sick or because their lungs are so sick. But this makes me wonder how much of it is because the diaphragm is impaired. Because I, I, you know, the ventilator settings can be fairly low by the time that they're traked. They have to be to be able to be traked. And so if they had functional diaphragms, could they prevent being, uh, tracheostomies. I, in the wake and walking ICU, I can think of maybe five to seven patients that I've ever seen throughout the multiple years I've worked there cases in which we had to give people tracheostomies and they're very unique cases like muscular dystrophy and, and very yeah. specific yeah. to that. And not, never because of ARDS or very high acuity respiratory failure. And so what role do you surmise? does early mobility or walking on the ventilator play in preserving those muscles? I think, I think it's vital just from a biomechanical point of view. Again, it's kind of weird, but nobody really thinks about biomechanics in the ICU. No. And it's kind of weird because there are still, there are still literally biomechanical movement going around. So if you just look at the fascia layers, so if you're looking at the fascia fibers of the diaphragm, and if you follow it up from the, the whole doom kind of form shape it has goes down the way it really goes down all the way to your upper leg to your fascia to your sartorius muscle to your psoas muscle so even the psoas muscle itself is connected by uh, connective tissue with fascia to your diaphragm so your position and your angulation of your hip can have significant effects on your diaphragm itself so what we, what we did was it's kind of some kind of preliminary data set, but imagine, I think that's the reason why I think um, it's kind of my introduction where I think is so important to, to, to walk with a fan is that if you have a patient who has, has an inability to thicken that, the diaphragm, what we did was if you put someone a little bit on their side and you're looking at things on the right side, they're having issues with thickening of that muscle. If you're putting a, a hip more to extension, you literally, so what you're making them, you're giving more, more, you literally stretch out the fiber. So there's more, the, the, the fiber length and the ability to give power for the diaphragm will change significantly. So it will be easier for the diaphragm to thicken because it cannot thicken in a very loose way. It has to have some kind of tension. So if you pre-tension the diaphragm already, then it has the ability to thicken far, far more clearly. And that's be done if you're laying down, but if you don't just walk, when you have extension of your hip, then you have your specific biomechanical strain on those muscle fibers and those fascia and the kind of tissue, then you have a far better function of your diaphragm 
because you're literally using it in a functional way, in a functional biomechanical way, how it should be. And that makes so much sense because that was my question throughout this process is the ventilator is almost doing the work for the, for the diaphragm. Yep. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. So how come patients in the wake and walking ICU have so much, so much stronger diaphragmatic function if they're on the ventilator just as much as any other patient, exactly. but yeah. walking ignites the, the diaphragm and co- preserves its function mass and, and all the connections. And, and there's a lot of stuff out. done right now where there is, I think, I don't, I don't know which group it was, but you have the potentially also to simulate the, the abdominal muscles, which also give a more pretension to the diaphragm, which also helps you and uh, doing a spirit briefing trial and, and have a less, again, it's all about inter-organ crosstalk with muscles and how they somehow correlate to each other from a metabolic perspective, but also from a biomechanical fascia perspective. There was a study done, I know, I, again, I think it was in Florida where they did a, because they knew if you're not in the ICU, but during, uh, during surgery, they saw that also during surgery, when you have a long-term, for instance, if you have thoracic surgery, when you have a very long time where you're being sedated and being being ventilated, that also were people having huge issues with their, with their diaphragmatic function afterwards. So what they did in a very small group was they did a control group and a patient group. So the patient was on the table and they 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 inserted electrode spacers on the diaphragm with a very small kind of pacing. So they did, I think, two or three contractions a minute, just slow pacing of that muscle diaphragm during the surgery on one side and the other side, they didn't do anything. And they compared afterwards. And you know, they saw that the, the non-pacing side already showed remodeling and the pacing side didn't show remodeling at all. So you are able, if you just somehow stimulate that muscle. And again, it doesn't have to be kind of the same what I, what I said before in our first podcast. It's just, you always have the issue with, with gravity. So you have to make sure that your architecture of the muscle stays stays good. It doesn't change. So your connective tissue, the rigidness of the muscle has to stay there. If that changes over time based on effusion or just being sedated and not using it, then you have significant issues. Just pacing it somehow, and one of the stuff could potentially be not through a invasive way of putting electrodes on the IC in the diaphragm, which I think people still do. There's a potential in also 
patient diaphragm directly percutaneously. But if you're just doing it from the abdominal muscle itself, it's the same way. It doesn't have to have a very uh, aggressive contraction. It just has to move. It just has to move. Maybe that's why even the studies showing that dangling at the bedside or sitting in the chair vastly improve outcomes. Of course, walking is always going to be better, but even that alone, we don't think about the abdominal muscles either or the intercostal muscles or the diaphragm. And and again, when you, when you see people, of course, they're not running on the ICU with the vent. It's also very slow pace and that's fine. And even a slow pace always gives rise to the specific recruitment of those abdominal muscles and also then giving rise to improvement of the diaphragm. Yeah. So in your ideal world, how would we structure this as far as protocolize preserving the muscles from the moment a patient is intubated or admitted to the ICU? Let's just say admitted to the ICU because I have concerns about high flow nasal cannula maintenance and lots of things. We talk a lot about ventilation on a ventilator, but I think this applies to any patient in the hospital period. But in your dream world, with all the resources, all the technology available, how wow. would we increase yeah, good, or improve good mortality through this? Good, good question. I think some of the stuff right now we're working on here at Duke with Paul Wismeyer and I, trying to see if we can put off a, call it a formal clinical metabolic nutritional service. Of course, in the ICU, but also outside the ICU, even on the floor, and predominantly also following our patients being discharged from the ICU because that's the, the, the biggest issue we're going to, we're still having. And then have also respiratory therapists, physical therapists, access physiologists, and, and dietitians being involved in the kind of specific task force who are able to do hands-on those specific assessments on a day-by-day basis. And even have, and that's what, we, what we're trying to, 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 to get into, a specific rounding for that task force all over the, all over the hospital to have specific tailoring needs for nutritional and exercise on those patients. And I think it's not that far away because of course it, it takes a little bit of time to do so, but you have patients who you can have very small because they're doing fine. And you have patients that has to, have to need more assessments done. So you can do the muscle sound assessments, for instance, where you can drive muscle size, but also muscle quality it can easily be done early in the morning there's a specific team going around. It takes you two to five minutes for, for, for just the muscle of the upper leg and then you're done for. Maybe interesting to, sh- to, 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 to mention, I think I did mention that before. Currently, we're seeing that there is, there's a specific change in other muscle groups that are of interest. Not only the, the most yeah, straightforward ones are, of course, the ones that the diaphragm, but also, of course, the leg. But right now, we're looking at different muscles, also potentially looking at the swallow muscle, so your tongue muscle. So solid dysfunction we're seeing also after mechanical ventilation is a very significant proportion of the people we're seeing that. I think within that group, you have two people. Those are that were having direct issues with the, with the tube. And that's the reason why they got solid dysfunction of the muscle of the tongue. And potentially, that's the people we're looking into, is that I think there were already people being prone for swallow dysfunction because the muscle of the tongue itself are very specific in regard to their histology. And the whole muscles in the head are specific in histology, not only the swell of the tongue, but also your temporalis muscle. We know already, I think in the dietitian world, we have temporal wasting. So if you're looking at patients, you see a very significant wasting of the temporal region. So you have a more concave 
kind of a skull, but it only talks about the size. And what we saw was that the muscle in the head itself are far more sensitive in overall changes than the muscle of the leg. So we see the temporalis muscle change over time rapidly than we see the leg does. And now I'm trying to figure out how this is the correlation between the temporalis muscle, the muscle of the tongue, and the muscle of the leg, and then potentially look at the diaphragm, maybe even in the intercostal muscle. But I think the when I'm starting off with the systemic mitochondrial dysfunction, where the muscle is one of the kind of a cool proxy to measuring it, is also very real in regard to swallow dysfunction. So you're going to have people who are in the ICU, who are maybe from a direct functional perspective, not had a swallow dysfunction yet, but the muscle itself is already prone to be dysfunctional if there is a high metabolic or high oxidative stress moment, which of course then happens when you have intubation and when you have RDS or, or sepsis or COVID. And does that apply as well? The patient's on a high flow nasal cannula. They're still having a high hypermetabolic state likely and high respiratory rate work of breathing. I put out a little survey because I, one of my concerns with high flow nasal cannula is of course, swallowing. A lot of patients are not safe to swallow, but as I did, I worked in telemedicine and I noticed that a lot of almost every patient on high flow nasal cannula was still eating without even a swallow evaluation from speech pathology. And so that concerned me. Are we not thinking about swallowing? If they look like they can swallow, they are swallowing. Well, I I don't think that's true. And then I asked the followers on Instagram kind of what they, what they've been doing. And they said that as far as enteral feeds with high flow nasal cannula, only see 41% of responders said that they give their patients on high flow nasal cannula enteral feeds zero to 30% of the time. And then only 20, 19% said that 80 to hundred percent of the time, do they give their patients on high flow nasal cannula enteral feeds, which um, was really shocking to me. I'm thinking of these COVID patients that are on high flow nasal cannula for sometimes weeks. So if we have these units that are not allowing their patients to get out of bed, if they're on high flow nasal cannula, and then we are not feeding them, you know, they, they've got their tray in front of them. They're taking a few bites. They're probably getting enough. They're fine. They're not moving anyways. Well, that, that's definitely a huge group who has a very high risk of mal, mal, malnourishment. And that's only the acute phase. Imagine what they're going to have or going to get from a mobility point of view when they get home, because there is so much stuff we just don't know. And, and, and even uh, you can, you can, we can assess those patients the same also with the metabolic card, right? Yes. It, 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 need, it needs more kind of specific technology, but we can even do or use patients with a, let's, let's put it this way. We, we, we can use metabolic cards, even with a mask, which and with a high FVO2. So we can do also assess patients metabolic card with a, with supplemental oxygen and still being able to drive their metabolic needs. And how much would that impact the intubation rates? If patients were being nourished and yeah. preserved their diaphragmatic function, yeah. would we prevent intubations if they weren't deconditioning to the point of Possibly, not being able to yes, keep up with their lungs? If, yeah, because if, if those functions are, are, are optimized and increased, then also your ability to oxygenate will be higher. So in the end, it will... Definitely. Again, I think it's not science yet because it's a very hard thing to, to sum up, but it, it will make sense 
that it will be that those people will be less at risk of getting intubated. Yep. And I'm sure nutritionists are aware of this. And I asked the listeners if nutritionists are. It's a, it's part a big struggle for them right now. I'm oh of course goodness. not a nutritionist itself, but I'm also my my kind of funny slogan is I think nutrition is still sexy because nutrition is not supposed to be sexy somehow. But nutrition, from my point of view, how we are seeing it, it is a very complex science. It's not just giving people a amount of 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 food. You have to have more in-depth knowledge about physiology and about metabolic cards and about potential imaging stuff. So that's right now also the, the dietitians I work with here in uh, at Duke, everyone needs to be trained that way. So we have, to, I think the, the 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 new dietitian running in right now will be completely different than than those who were uh, running the ICUs before, because they have just the ability to have more knowledge about this specific space and also have the ability to use these devices and use this 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 technology. Paul Wismeyer says, and I think it's a kind of a kind of a cool kind of uh, citation. He says that. The, the ultrasound probe should be kind of the stethoscope of the uh, of the dietitians. That that's their way of assessing patients, and I think that makes sense. And that, of course, making also the case that the dietitians and the physical therapists, those had to be a team. So they have to work together. Yeah. And like salivating, just thinking of this kind of process. How different would that be? And I think uh, if teams. It sounds like a lot of teams don't have nutritionists part of their rounds. Nope. And sometimes I think it, it happens. Like you say, what, what feed do you want? What's the right? Okay, great. And that's it. But if they were really integrated in the discussion, how could, how much could they impact our outcomes? Absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah but I yeah. think it comes down to our culture, our priorities. Again, the it's mindset. I think, no, it. absolutely. I think the, and what I'm seeing over here, technology wise and device wise and other stuff, that's, that's of course hard, but that's not the hardest. The hardest is just changing mindsets and changing paradigms. And I think we have, we have a good start here at Duke. I think we have a cool team. We are, we are very passionate people over here who are willing to go all the way. And, and, and I think we are hopefully getting there where, again, my dream will be. And, 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 and eventually we will get there. I'm completely convinced about it. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to take it back to one little question. Um, someone asked about how to manage stress-induced hyperglycemia. And I saw an article just now that said that one week of bed rest leads to substantial muscle atrophy and induces whole body insulin resistance in the absence yeah. of skeletal muscle lipid accumulation. And yeah. in the study, it was healthy young males, again, not critically ill, but they were just in bed for a week and they had about a 1.4 kilogram lean muscle loss after one week. And you touched on this throughout the other episodes. So would our hypoglycemia situations be improved if we didn't have such severe muscle loss in addition to the high propofol use. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think we're kind of running in a circle right now because right now we're one of the ones inducing the resistance, another way trying to get rid of it in, in giving them insulin. And it is mainly muscle, muscle insulin resistance, which you can which you can potentially change by alter optimizing the muscle quality itself. So the whole glute potential location inside the muscle you can change. It can be changed by the use of electrostimulation. It can be changed by the mobilization, even sitting up already. It's just any activation of the muscle that gives rise. We know that the mainly the fast-twitch fibers are most can easily be trained to be more insulin-sensitive. Insulin so that, that's, that's but again, it's kind of the nitty-gritty. I think it's, it's, it makes sense that you have to have a very, and again, that, that's one of the stuff I was saying already, it, 
the early mobilization starts off upon admission. And then, of course, define early mobilization. I think any mobilization has to start upon admission. Because that makes sense. There is no way where you should stop it. There is any mobilization. There can even be passive mobilization whatsoever. But that has to be done. Because there could be no discussion that you're saying right now. We, we cannot do it. There's always a And it can be dose dependent. We, we adjust all sorts of things for patient status, capacity, function, wherever they're at, as far as medications and different treatments. Exercise can be the same thing, but it has to be something that has to be right away. In the ICU world, this big word is rehabilitation, which I completely appreciate. I think any patient, no matter how optimal their care and outcomes were, are still going to need some rehabilitation. Right. Yet, what if we focused equally or even more so on preservation? Yeah. 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 Preservation, optimization. That has to be because yeah. I think we are creating already people who is who are in need of rehabilitation because we did not a good job in the sense of could we have a bad done a better job if we did it already before absolutely and thanks to your work we're hopefully going to change our culture and our practices anything else you would share with the icu community no no i think i hopeful that i can be some kind of a people try to see my point of view a little bit and to see what i can do and that also from my nurse perspective and a dietitian perspective and i from a college perspective, I think there has to be a far better understanding and a far better discussion about how the organ systems all somehow interact with each other. And also maybe kind of advocating for myself that I think there is also a, a very significant position as exercise physiologist in the ICU. It's kind of weird, but I think it's, it's there. We can be helpful in regard to our specific skills and knowledge about how those frameworks of exercise in a clinical space and even in a, in a critical illness space can work out. And again, it's all, it's all teamwork. There is no one is doing it on, on their own. We can only, only get this done if we, if we work together. Absolutely. And I think you've demonstrated the value that you can bring to critical care. I think you're going to be our go-to guru. We'll probably be circling back to you in the future with oh, a lot more questions. Yeah, sure. Sure, okay. sure. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Bye. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytoniceconsulting.com.